Welcome again to Grace Ann Arbor. My name is John Compton. I am the pastor of mission here at Grace. And I know with the start of school year just around the corner that we have many faces and people who are new and some of you who have come back, which means a lot of you uh, have no idea who I am. Um, And that's because my family and I, we just moved here a few weeks ago this summer. And the reason why I'm here is because I have a a deep passion to plant a church, to start a new church. And often people wonder, when they hear about people starting new churches, they wonder why. Like, why start new churches? There are a bunch of other churches that aren't full. Why don't we just uh, do something with them? And the reason why people start new churches and why I desire to start one is because new churches are best able to engage and reach out to those who are not already in church communities. And this is a a deep passion of mine because this is my background. I did not grow up in a church-going family, but but I'm deeply uh, indebted to and grateful for uh, those who invited me in again and again so that I could experience the grace of God. Um, One aspect of this that I will always carry with me as I was learning about Jesus and Christianity is that there are times that my perception of the church and who Jesus is, they weren't always the same. And this is kind of the reason behind this series that we're doing for the next three weeks of Jesus as greater than religion. Uh, Because I'm sure that there are some of us here, um, and we're trying out Christianity, and what you've seen, and maybe what you've experienced, is that Christianity is just one of many religions. And so my hope this morning is as we look at this story that you would see that Jesus is so much more than just one of many religions. And for those of us who are regulars and who have come here uh, as just habit or something we've done, I hope that you and I would experience the mercy of Jesus in new and fresh ways. Now, before we uh, look at this text that we're going to, uh, a couple of disclaimers. Um, The main character in our text, his name is Mephibosheth, which naturally rolls off the tongue. Uh, And I have a slight speech impediment. So I'm going to stumble through his name, and I may just call him Mephibo because it's easier. Uh, So just bear with me with that, and kind of a funny story along those lines that I think about as many are starting school uh, this coming week. You see, when I was a little kid, like three and four, and first learning to talk, um, uh, like many children, uh, my T's sounded like F's, right? So three sounded like free, thirsty sounded like firsty, um, tired sounded like fired. Um, and so keep that in mind. So fast forward, I'm, I'm going to kindergarten, and I have an older brother, and I'm really excited to go to kindergarten because my brother is two years older than me, um, has been going without me, and I enjoyed playing with him. And I was really looking forward to recess because, uh, not just because it was time to play, but because it was a time that I could see my brother. You know, I hadn't learned yet the reality that older siblings want nothing to do with younger siblings at recess at school. And so I think it's the first recess, the first day of school, and I run out and I find my brother, and he doesn't shoo me away, which is nice. Uh, Instead, he gathers all of his friends together. And, and they gather all around me, and my brother goes to me, and he goes, Johnny, Johnny, 
say the word truck. T, F, yeah. Got a lot of ums and oh, uh, and you know, that's older siblings. Uh, but anyways, back, back, to, back to our story, back to our text. Um, the story we're about to read comes from a time when David is kind of finally settling in as king of the people of Israel. Now, David is not the first king of Israel. He's the second king. And he's not the son of the first king, which is like a red flag that something big happened. Because normally, right, the second king would be the son of the first king. That's typically how things go. Well, you see, the first king was Saul, and he had kind of abandoned God's way, so God had decided to appoint a new king, and this was David. And as you can imagine, David and Saul uh, had a strained relationship, and Saul wanted to have David killed. To make matters more complicated for David is through his life, somehow he had become best friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. So on one hand, Saul wanted him killed, on the other hand, David and Jonathan were best friends. So the story goes on like this for a while, and finally what ends up happening is Saul and Jonathan die in, on the field of battle. And so David becomes king. And he spends a few years kind of establishing his kingdom, and this text is kind of the first time where he's really kind of sitting on his throne, and he can kind of evaluate things and not just react to things. So let me pray for us before we look at our text. God, uh, we thank you that you have brought us here to this place. That however we come here this morning, uh, many of us coming uh, be ready to begin or about to begin a, a new journey, a new chapter of our lives. And some of us come uh, unsure where we are. But God, help us know, help us feel and experience your hand holding ours, that you are right here with us that you have brought us to this place, that we would experience and know your mercy. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our text, if you want to follow along in your Bible, it's 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9, or you can just follow along on the screen as I read along. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. Then the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Meshir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And then King David sent and brought him from the house of Meshir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Now when you're reading Old Testament passages, one way to get a hint at the theme of the passage is to look at words that are repeated. And there's one word that's repeated twice, and these few verses, that's kind of our theme for the text. Did anybody see it? You can say it out if you did. Thank you again. She had to answer the first service, so, so don't feel bad. Um, it is kindness. And it's, kindness is from the Hebrew word hesed, 
which I think is better translated as mercy, but I'm not a biblical scholar, so maybe they're right. But we are going to look at mercy. And we're going to look at our need for mercy, the power of mercy, and the joy of mercy. And our need for mercy simply comes from the reality that all of us have experienced the crippling effects of this world. Mephibosheth, as we read in our text, is lame in his feet. Now, we didn't hear about why that is or how that happened, but we would if we read a few chapters earlier. In 2 Samuel chapter 4, we read that after, right after Saul and Jonathan die in battle, news reaches their house. And Mephibo is five years old, and so his nurse, the person that's watching him, scoops him up and runs with them because they have to go into hiding because they're worried about what will happen. And this nurse, as she's running with him, she drops him. And our text says he becomes crippled in his feet. And now we read that as years have gone on, not only is Mephibo lame in his feet, but he's been living in low debar. Low debar literally means not a pasture. Debar is pasture, low is the negative prefix, not a pasture. He's been living in a wasteland. So he's lame in the feet, he's living in a wasteland, and now he's being summoned to the king. Now imagine with me what normally happens when you're the only living relative of the ex-king and the new king calls you to his presence, right? Normally, the new king is going to have you killed because he doesn't want anybody to have rightful claim to the throne. And so Mephibo is in need of mercy, And we all need mercy too. And it's typically because we go through life like this. We experience, we have a painful experience. We make meaning out of that experience. And then we make a vow to make sure that painful experience never happens again. And often this vow sabotages our life. Let me share how this happens in my life. So as much as I don't uh, appreciate my brother using me for humor at a very young age, I did appreciate that when I was growing up, my brother made a point to always teach me math as he learned it throughout grade school. So when he was in kindergarten, he would come home and teach me as a three-year-old math. And he would do it in first grade and second grade and for several years throughout grade school. And this resulted in me being very good at math. And I loved being the smartest person in math. I took great pride in doing that. So as the years went on, I was actually looking forward to this test that I could take in fifth grade. You could take this test in fifth grade that if you did really well on it, you could skip sixth grade math and go to seventh grade math. And I was looking forward to this because I knew I could do it. Well, fifth grade rolls around, and I am placed in a combination class, which means I am in the classroom with fifth graders and fourth graders. Now, I know there's such a thing as like a multi-age classroom uh, philosophy of education. Uh, I don't know enough about this, but I do know that what I was in was not that, right? This was something that was due to budget restrictions. Teachers didn't like it. They had to just do the best they could for the year that they were in charge of the combination class. And so the year goes on, and we're getting towards the end of the year, and about two or three weeks before the test, and I realize we're only halfway through our math textbook. And so I asked my teacher if the test is just going to be over what we've covered. 
And he goes, oh no, it will be over the whole book. And so I do what the only thing I think I can do, which is I attempt to teach myself the second half of the textbook all by myself. So imagine little John, little fifth grade John, trying to teach himself half of a math textbook in two to three weeks. Now, as you can imagine, I can't do it. And I failed the test. And the saddest part of the story is that I failed the test and nobody says anything. Nobody seems to care. I don't hear anything from my teacher. I don't hear anything from my classmates, from my parents, nobody. And so the meaning I made from that painful experience was that nobody is going to help me with my goals. And that, in fact, not only will people not help me, but more than likely they will be obstacles towards my goal. Because those other classmates, it's their fault that I didn't get the attention I needed, didn't get the teaching I needed to reach my goal. And so I made a vow that from now on, when it comes to something really important to me, I am going to do it by myself, and I am going to push out of the way anybody who's an obstacle. And again, everybody's an obstacle. And the crippling effect of this isn't the fact, right, that I, I didn't get to skip sixth grade math, right? Now, however many years later, it didn't matter that I didn't skip sixth grade math. The crippling effect is that this vow has become a script of my life. Right? And I carry with me this script to this day that when I pursue goals, other people are obstacles. They're people that have to be overcome to get what I really want. And as a result of this vow, I sabotage myself. Because most things in life you can't do on your own. And if you treat people as enemies all the time, they will become your enemies. If you treat somebody like an obstacle, they will become an obstacle. And that's happened again and again throughout my life. And so I wonder for you, how have you been crippled in life? What are some painful experiences that you carry with you because you have a new script? You know, for many of us, I'm sure we've had relationships that were broken. And we thought to ourselves when we made this vow, I will never let myself be hurt by someone like that again. And you don't, but you also don't have trusting relationships. Or perhaps you took a big risk one time and you failed, you were deeply humiliated and you made the vow, I will never be humiliated like that again. And you haven't, but you also haven't taken a risk in years. And so we live by these scripts that cripple us, that we carry with us. But thankfully, the power of mercy flips the script. See, Mephibo is crippled, living in a wasteland, is the only living relative of the ex-king, and he comes before David expecting to receive his death sentence. But this is what happens instead. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? 
Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Mephibosheth falls before David, expecting to receive his death sentence. And David says, do not be afraid. I will show you mercy. And more than that, David not only shows him mercy, he doesn't just not kill him, he restores him land and makes him a son. Right? Do you see the two scripts of Mephibosheth's life? On one hand, he is always the victim. He is the one who has suffered at the hands of others. Through no fault of his own was he dropped. Through no fault of his own was he the, the, the king's, ex-king's grandson. Through no fault of his own did he grow up in a wasteland. And yet, David takes Mephibosheth from nothing to royalty. And Mephibosheth, he couldn't earn his way there. He couldn't simply just try harder. He can't simply just do more. Right? Royalty isn't a meritocracy. Right? It's this choice of the king. Right? And here, the king chooses not to have him killed, and it's the king's right who's going to argue with him. And the king invites him to his table, and who's going to tell the king who he can and cannot invite to his table. The power and beauty of mercy comes from the fact that the one with power becomes a servant to the one without power. Right, I said a good way to make sense of a text is to see a word that shows up again and again, and you'll notice that servant shows up ten times in our text. Because that's exactly what David becomes to Mephibosheth. He becomes his servant that moves Mephibosheth from a nobody and invites him to his royal table. And many years after David, there would be one like David, but greater than David. It would be God himself in the flesh who would come to this world as a servant. Jesus would say to his disciples, I did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give my life as a ransom for many. Right, God, who is all-powerful, who made the world and all that is in it, when the world was marred with sin, decided to enter into the wasteland of the world, to take on the nature of a human, to be a, a servant, even to be obedient to death on a cross. As Isaiah would say, by his stripes we are healed. He was crushed for our iniquities. And because of that, we can marvel at the grace and mercy of God, just as Paul did in the book of Romans. Paul writes, who will bring a charge against us? Right? Who can say and met out what we truly deserve and earn? Well, it's God. 
But what does God do? God justifies. Well, who can condemn us? Who, who can point out, this is what we are, have done wrong, this is what we truly deserve? Well, it's Christ Jesus. But what has he done? He's the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who in, indeed is interceding for us. So then who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And Paul's answer is nobody. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. Wherever you are, whatever wasteland you find yourself in, however you've been crippled by this world, whatever pain you've received, whatever pain you have delivered to others, God, through Jesus Christ, has become crippled for you that he would extend to you the mercy of God and invite you to his table. So then, let's get ready to receive God's mercy. For that's the joy of mercy, is to receive it. Imagine with me the next few years of Mephibo's life. Every day, he gets to dine with the king. Imagine and picture with me this table. Right, You have David's sons who are strong and mighty, just like David, who stride confidently up to the table, who boast of their battles and the victories that they've won. And then you have David's daughters who glide gracefully to the table, whose beauty is so great that many of these battles are in fact fought over their love and affection. And at the head of this table is David himself. And David is in the glory of the height of his power. And yet David sees someone standing in the corner and he invites him to his table. It's Mephibosheth. And he can't stride confidently. He can't glide gracefully. He has to stumble and limp and shuffle his feet to the table because he's lame in his feet. And yet this is a picture of us as we come to this table. We come with a limp, carrying within us the wounds we have received from this world. We don't come because we're strong enough. We don't come because we're good enough. We come because the king invites us to dine with him as sons and daughters. One thing I want to mention and highlight is you'll notice at the end of the text, the narrator emphasizes again that Mephibosheth is lame in his feet. His, the mercy that David extends to him doesn't heal his crippled legs. And mercy does this. Mercy doesn't heal everything you want, but it is all you need. Mephibosheth was living in a wasteland. He was lame in his feet. He had no food. He had no status. But David brought him to his table and made him a son of the king and made him royalty. Now, often when we're crippled, when we receive pain in life, one thing it does is that it often reveals something that's become too important to us. Right? If we lose our job, we often begin to think, my life will only have meaning if I get a job again. Or if a relationship comes to an end, we often think, my life will only have meaning when I find that significant other. 
And any time we start to think like this, if my life will only have meaning if, right, that's a sign that something's become too important to us. In the words of Scripture, that this something is an idol, is a false god that we worship. And the way this plays out in my life, right, the script that I follow, right, ultimately it's about me pursuing the god of prestige and status. Right, I want these goals so much that I begin to worship them. And I often wonder why I do it, right? Because this is how it plays out. This God of prestige and status, it's not, he's not forgiving. When I screw up, there is no mercy. And the sacrifices he demands of me is to hurt deeply those who are very near me, to push away the people that God has placed and given me in my life. And I go to him again and again, this God who demands so much. And when he gives me my goal, it's not enough. It lets me unfulfilled and unsatisfied. And I often wonder, what am I doing? Why do I keep going after this God? Why don't I go towards the God who is merciful and just towards me? who is the king of the universe, who knows all things, who made all things, who sees all the pain I've endured and who knows the pain I've inflicted on others, and yet he still invites me again and again to his presence. And then I remember with great joy that I can come again and again to the table. So won't you join me now and come and dine as we celebrate communion. Come and dine with the king as sons and daughters. Let me pray for us. God, we are not worthy of your table. We cannot come gracefully. We come with a limp. And yet we recognize that you love us just as we are. That you desire to be with us. That we would know your mercy. That we would know you. And so God... We thank you for who you are, how you've created the world and all that is in it. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who took on sin and death in his own body and was raised to new life, making all things new. And we give praise to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God, we ask that now, through the body and through the bread that we eat and the uh, juice that we drink, that it would be to us the body and blood of Christ, that we would know your mercy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.